0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: Hello, I'm Lolly Arakoglu, and this is a brand new episode of Women Who Travel. At the end of last year, Shayna Sabib talked at length about avoiding obsessive adherence to bucket lists and encouraged us all to be more intentional and thoughtful with our travels. It got us thinking about a trend that we talk a lot about at Coné Traveller, slow travel. So over the next few months, we'll be digging into what that term actually means and how to incorporate that mindset into the way we see and experience the world.
2: For me, slow travel is really walking. And it's one of the ways I really love to see a country, is to walk across it. Because I think by doing that, you you smell it, you feel it under your feet, you have the wind or the cold or the sun on your face, and it gives you an entirely new depth to what you're experiencing. Author and
1: BBC presenter Alice Morrison is talking to me from the high Atlas Mountains, what she dubs the Switzerland of Morocco.
2: I really wanted to do something. I wanted to move. I wanted to cross something, you know. Were you always a big walker? All human beings, if you think about it, unless we're differently abled, are big walkers. I mean, you know, once we emerged from the primordial swamp and stood on our two legs, that's the first thing we did. We migrated. It was almost immediate. So I do think that that kind of desire to move is absolutely genetically programmed within it. Alice walked across Morocco from the Sahara
1: to the Atlas Mountains in three parts, keeping a diary and writing notes along the way, which led to her book, Walking with Nomads.
2: The reason I called my book Walking with Nomads was I was walking with two people who were nomads, and we met many nomads along the way. My first stage of this three-stage journey was to walk from Warzazat to a place called Wedzbika, which is just south of Tantan on the Atlantic coast. The first leg along the Draa River was absolutely fantastic. I found a lost city. I found tombs of the giants. There were these spaceship-like structures in the middle of the desert on top of the cliffs that are funerary monuments. I unearthed shards of fossilized ostrich eggs from when there used to be ostriches roaming in the Sahara. I mean, there, it really was like Indiana Jones for Girls. We kept finding things, which was fantastic and rather unexpected, actually. And then when I finished that leg, I wanted to walk from the Mediterranean to Mauritania. So I then did a further two legs, one a Sahara leg from where we'd finished the first expedition to Gergerat on the Mauritanian border. And then the very last one, I had to go up north and go from Nador down back to Wurzasat. To a very triumphant ending in Wurzasat itself.
1: Tell me a little bit more about the landscape. Um, Was there a change of scenery um, as you went through each
2: phase of this journey? There really was. I mean, the landscape was, it was soul expanding. That's the only way to describe it. We'd walk for days sometimes and not see anyone. And sometimes in the Sahara, you'd walk for days and not see anything. You were walking on flat sand in the wind and you could see the curvature of the globe. You you literally could see the way the horizon curved because all there was was gold sand and blue sky. And then in the Atlas Mountains, we're in these incredible high jagged mountains with valleys filled with agriculture and tall poplar trees, you know, fields of crops, people bringing down um, fuel for the winter. Lots and lots of goat herds. So it was extremely varied. But I think my favourite, my favourite landscape, and it's just the personal thing, is if you like the very, very wide river valleys. So you'll have a huge river valley, which might be a kilometre across, of gold, silver and the blue, blue sky. Who were you with? I had with me three Amazir. Berber guides and six camels. Um, the camels, my favorite, and the leader was called Hamish. And of the three guides, two stayed with me for the whole seven and a half months. And that was Addi, who at 23 was very young when he started out. And it's the son of a nomad. Um, he was brought up in a tent. Illiterate and actually didn't speak Arabic, only spoke Tashlehit, his own language, because he'd never been to school. And then Brahim, who was probably in his 40s, and he was the son of a shepherd, but he was a very experienced expeditioner. And he's also a hafid al Quran, which means he'd learned the Quran off by heart. And actually, one of the beautiful things about the whole voyage is that every single morning I was woken up to the sound of him singing the prayers, and he had a very, very beautiful voice.
1: I love that. That makes me think. I mean, very different, but of um, all the time I've spent in Istanbul and getting woken up by the call to prayer, Um, which is very different when it's blasting from speakers across a loud city. But I imagine the impact is somewhat the same you know we've been talking about slow travel and walking and I think you know to me as someone who's from the UK it's very easy to romanticize that but it also can be a just a necessary means of getting from one place to another especially if you're living a nomadic lifestyle what
2: did they think of you and what you were setting out to do Well, I suspect they thought I was off my rocker, to be honest, when I first started, but I soon became one of the team. I think I learned so much from them because as you say, it's very easy to romanticize this lifestyle, but actually it's, it's extremely difficult and harsh. It's very beautiful. The family ties are. Unbelievable. And the simplicity, the living with nature, living with your animals, the sheer kind of beauty of what you see and experience every day is, you know, is something that really touched my soul. But I also recognize that, you know, when you're sick, there are no doctors. When you're cold, you're in a tent every single night and it gets to below zero. So you're very, very cold. If you, if your teeth go bad, there's no dentist. So I think, as you say, it's very easy to romanticize, but what I tried to do was take all the good things, the simplicity, the generosity, the hospitality um, and that kind of feeling of being really bonded with the earth, with, with Mother Earth, and then also to enjoy modern dentistry.
1: How many miles were you covering each day? And it must have got harder with less food.
2: The mileage was, it depended on what leg we were on. And we were always went going at the pace of camels because the camels were carrying all our food and our water. Water was the most important part of everything. And so in the Sahara, we walked fast because it was flat and we walked for five hours a day and at five kilometers an hour. And that is basically, that's camel pace because the most important things were to keep the camels in good health um, because they were carrying all our food and most importantly, all our water. We did roughly 25 kilometers a day on the Sahara leg and between, I'd say, 18 and 25 on the other legs.
1: I wanted to know more about the dynamics between Alice and her guides and how it changed throughout their journey. In a minute... On any long journey, rituals help to pass the time, whether it's games or even sing-alongs.
3: I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: Tell me a little bit about, I guess, like the daily routine, you know, everyone has to kind of like pull their weight, right? So I'm sure there were chores that you had to do. Someone was taking care of the camels. How did you divvy up all the responsibilities and how did you work together?
2: I decided from very early on that I didn't want to be like a client or a guest. I wanted to be one of the team. So from the very first day, I helped unload the camels, put the tents up do all those kind of, you know, chores that we all needed to do. But we did have separate responsibilities. So one of the Brahims was a cook. Um Adzi's job was to help the camels and to make the bread. And Brahim's job was to oversee the camels and to set our directions of travel. And my job was to help with everything. And also I demanded that I'd be allowed to do the dishes. Now, this sounds like a strange thing, but it was a job that I could do and nobody in any culture in the whole universe, likes doing the dishes. So the men were actually really grateful because it meant that after every single meal, I was there scrubbing away at the pots and pans. And bear in mind that especially on the Sahara leg, we only had perhaps the equivalent of a mug of water to wash dishes for soup, a casserole for four people. So it it was a, a really mucky, horrible job.
1: So tell me a little bit more about the camels and their personalities.
2: I'm going to tell you about Hamish first because he was my favorite. He used to come and sit by my tent. And it was quite nice, actually. Sometimes when you're feeling a bit down, it's very nice to have a big hairy camel kind of <laughs> slobbering all over you. I would recommend it. So Hamish, was they were all male camels. And one of the things you need to know about them is they were all on heat for two of the legs of the journeys. Um, and when male camels are on heat, they do lots of things. If they smell a female camel and they can smell a female camel from a kilometre away, they spread their legs, pee and whip the pee up onto their backs with their tails acting like helicopters. Oh
1: my God. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, like, honestly, I think I've seen that in, like, central London before, but, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very similar. And then the other thing they do is they, they blow this, they've got a big pink flap of skin inside their mouths that so looks that they blow out of their mouths and fill it with um, saliva. And it's like a big, huge, bubble gum ball the size of a football. Um, The problem with that is all the saliva falls on you when you're at their front leading them. So we would be covered in camel spit for large quantities of time. But um, Hamish was a bit of a card. He he would um, always be on the lookout for the ladies and he would do things like he'd wait until Brahim wasn't looking and then sneak out behind him to find a lady love in the desert. So, yes, the camels were very entertaining. They all have their own personalities. Farquhar, for example, was a big softy and used to kind of gallop around the camp, kicking his legs up after we'd finished for the day. Um, Hamish was naughty and used to bite people, including <laughs> me, if he possibly could. And But still your favourite. Oh, he was absolutely... Who doesn't love a bad boy? Come on.
1: Here's Alice reading from Travelling with Nomads about Hector the camel having a sore
2: foot. Hector has a blister. He's limping and keeps falling behind. We try to limit his pain by unloading some of the heavy stuff and redistributing it, and also by choosing to walk where there are as few stones as possible. This means our route is even more meandering than usual. It's a real problem. We need all six camels as we are entering further into a no-water zone and are heading west and south, far from any tarmac and possible water trucks. The men confer after lunch and decide to operate. Brahim goes and brings Hector in from his grazing and couches him. Ishu ties a rope around his left foreleg, where the sore is, over his thigh and shin to keep the leg bent. He then passes the rope over Hector's back. Now, both legs are immobilized with his sore pad exposed. By this time, Hector knows something bad is up and starts booming quietly and looking at us with questioning eyes. Brahim is squatting directly in front of him at his head with his hand holding firmly onto the halter close to his mouth, bringing his head low to the sand. Ishua and Adi are busy at the fire. They're heating up the hoe head and two iron tent pegs until they are as red hot as the embers. They've also spread out a chunk of yellowish-white animal fat left over from our meat supplies. They press a palm-sized gobbet of the fat deeply into the hole in Hector's pad. The bad bit is about to start and Brahim takes hold of Hector's bottom lip. Hector lets out a roar of pain. Smoke from the fat and the smell of burning flesh fill the air. Yeshua presses again and again, going back to the fire to get the heated pegs and laying these flat against the fat. Hector is being so good. He cries, but he doesn't thrash until the very end. Suddenly, he obviously can't take anymore and lashes out violently with his back legs. Ishu and Adi jump out of the way. A kick would snap their bones like a twig. The aim has been to use the fat and the heat to cauterize and seal the wound. By pressing deep into the flesh, it will burn away the damaged tissue and harden it so that the wound doesn't continue to deepen and split Hector's pad. Ishu unties him and Brahim lets go of his bottom lip and takes off his halter. Meanwhile, Addi has laid out a feast of oats on a tarpaulin under a tree for shade. Hector surges to his feet and Addi guides him over to the treat. He munches away and when I look over half an hour later, he has couched himself beside the tarpaulin and is still looking a bit sorry for himself. (coughs)
1: An experience like that must really bond you as a group. How did your relationships change over the journey? What was the arc? Because, you know, from what I understand, there are very few women guides in Morocco. So what was that dynamic like between you and all of the men at the beginning? And how did it change?
2: what happened was as we went through our different adventures and got to know each other and got to spend every night together and walked for hours talking to each other and got to learn about each other's cultures and what we thought and also don't forget you know in these pressurized situations or even just long situations your true self comes out so you you can't hide behind any kind of artifice and i think that's how you bond with people it's by showing your authentic self your vulnerable self your you know when your tummy's bad and you have to run miles out of camp because you've got diarrhea and everyone else is laughing at you because (laughs) of course it's funny. I mean, that's what bonds you. It's all the small things um, and knowing I think when you start from a base of affection and respect and I felt immense respect for these men from the very beginning for their talents and for the way they guided me safely and all of us you know safely through this insane journey seven and a half months on foot through some of the most hostile environments in the world including 10 days through landmines and we made it so I felt so much respect for them and I think they felt that and then they were able to give me respect back. We, we all we sang as we walked what did you sing uh,
1: wait this is <laughs> well you really did get close if you're all singing together <laughs> we were
2: I mean <laughs> I, I don't really want to sing for you because I think people might switch off in their droves but there's there's kind of a walking song which is Allah Allah ya mama as ya mama and you you repeat it and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses so um we sang that a lot as we walked
1: was there any sort of natural dangers? I mean, yes. you know, you, you mentioned Indiana Jones. I'm like, was there like quicksand or, you know, what, how
2: is the desert dangerous? The desert's dangerous. One day we were walking along in our usual formation, which was Lahu and Addi at the front with th- their camels. Callum is their lead camel. And then me and Brahim behind with Hamish as our lead camel. We were talking about football. Moroccans are crazy about football. So Brahim and I are chatting about football. And suddenly there was the most... Horrific scream from Callum, the lead camel, and he had sunk up to his chest in quicksand with no warning. And because the camels are tied together in a camel train, he was pulling down Alistair, who was behind him, he was pulling him down into the sand. So it was like a car crash, you know, when like within a split second, you change from complete serenity to a, a an experience that could lead to death. Addi is very young and very strong. And the only reason that Callum didn't drown in the quicksand, because what happens is if you hit the water underneath the sand, you go down and you drown, you would literally drown in sand, is that Addi managed to yank him up, yank his neck up and push him out of the sand. And then there's all this screaming and the camels are bellowing. And we were so lucky to escape because it went on a bit longer. Our other camels got trapped, but we managed to get them out and we managed to get to safety. And that was probably our closest actual experience with something that could have been catastrophic. One of the things that I I write about in my book is about climate change because we, you know, I walked for seven and a half months and I had one week of rain, three days of rain. So we're suffering from a drought in Morocco, have done since 2014, really. And You know, seeing that kind of climate change is quite devastating. The Sahara is dried up. It can't sustain life. That's why when you see all these boat people, refugees coming over to Europe, to Britain, a lot of them are coming from the Sahel. And the reason they're coming is the land has completely dried out. And the reason the land has dried out is because of our actions towards climate change. And it's not really because of their actions. So it's very difficult when you, You suddenly feel this global responsibility for the way you've been living and you see what effect it has on the land that you travel through. Next up, while Alice forged great friendships with her Berber companions, she also talks extensively
1: of the memorable chats with women she met along their route.
0: Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of the New Yorker Fiction podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring
3: its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to
0: authors like Otessa Moshfegh talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination
3: that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear
0: writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling.
3: On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the
0: reader's mind.
2: You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites
3: in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month.
0: Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: One of the wonderful things about these travels was, you know, I was going across very, very remote territory, very underpopulated territory. So the people we met were absolutely very rural people. Um, They were either subsistence farmers or they were goat herders or in the Sahara, they were camel herders. And to a man and woman, they were the most hospitable people I have ever encountered even when they were very poor and you could tell that they didn't have much for themselves they would bring out their very best for us they'd always bring out fresh bread camel milk or goats milk and sometimes this very delicious soured goats milk which is called agro which is absolutely marvelous
1: what was the most sort of memorable meal or evening you shared with some people who hosted you
2: well one night we were camped outside um, a desert city in the Sahara. and We were camped in a kind of a, because we couldn't go into cities with the camels. And I say city, but I mean town really. And all of the notable people of the city came out to greet us. So all the kind of the judge and the governor and the mayor and the head of police. And they all arrived to, to have dinner with us in our kind of little mm-hmm. end, hollow in the sand with all the camels couched around us in our tents and they brought with them a feast and in the Sahara they eat rice that's their main dish so it was rice with camel meat and they brought everything with them they brought tea and dates and fruit and Fanta and then we sat around talking about politics and poetry
3: Tini 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 Tini
2: Tini Tini soft squished um dates?
1: What
2: Al um, Tadun. Tadun. Which is beautiful fresh baked bread with um fat. Sounds doesn't sound nice, but fat from goat inside it with spices. And this is our host, Ahmed. Helena Ahmed.
1: It seems like you had a lot of encounters with the men who lived there, but um were you crossing paths with the women much too?
2: Well, this is the wonderful thing that um, this is my superpower, actually, because I'm, I'm exploring and adventuring in the Middle East and Africa, uh, usually in very traditional communities. And as a woman, I get to meet the other women. And it's really something that men cannot do because in these communities, a man cannot mingle with women who are not from his family at all. So, when we would approach a nomad's tent, for example, in the Sahara, Lahu would say to me, Zahra, they call me Zahra, 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 get to the front. You're the key. Because <laughs> I, I had to approach the tents because the women would be in the tents, the men would be out with the camels and women would be very frightened if men arrived at their tent, you know, Alone. And also, I mean, one time I was actually sitting in the tent having a very nice cup, a glass of tea with these Sahrawi women. Um, and the men were outside also having tea, but outside. And a, a husband arrived running with a huge stick ready to beat the guys because he thought that they had, you know, come into his, his women's tent. So I did meet all the women. And I think that was one of the great privileges that I had was to be able to speak to them about their lives. And these are not voices that you hear very often. And then I remember another encounter, and this was, if you like, completely the opposite. And it was with, we were walking again in the middle of Sahara. So we're walking through sand and suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, a beautiful, gorgeous young woman appears in her her bright colored milfa. And that's the robe that Saharan women wear, which is usually brightly colored tie dye. And it's a bit like a sari, except it covers all of you. And it also goes over your head. So this woman kind of fluttered out of the sands and invited us for tea. And she told me that she was actually, she spoke English, Arabic, Hassaniya, and Italian. She had studied in the nearby city of Leoun and she was just back in the desert with her grandfather. She said, oh, you know, my granddad, he likes to keep the traditional life. He's got, he's really old, but he's got some goats and some camels. <laughs> so we come out of the weekend to keep him company. She said, but it's so boring for us. She said, there's no internet. You know, none of my friends are here. I can't go for coffee anywhere. And I just thought how funny that this is the person that I meet in this, in the middle of this wilderness
1: you know, we're talking about the relationship with, you know, your fellow travellers. How did your relationship with yourself change? You must have, you know, when I've done long hiking trips over, I mean, nothing compared to this, the course of a few days, you have a lot of time just in your own thoughts. Um, How did the relationship with yourself evolve?
2: I think I like myself more when I'm doing something like that than I do when I'm sitting at home on the couch with the cats watching Netflix. So I think when you're in the midst of an endeavour and you have a very clear set of goals, uh, I think you're allowed to like yourself more and to enjoy your life more. At least that's what I find. So I liked myself better.
1: I feel like I, even when I'm sort of really, when it's sort of a low point of a journey, whether it is having a horrible stomach upset and trying to run and find a toilet, (laughs) or I'm tired or I'm hungry and I'm cranky, somehow I always feel like I'm the best version of myself when I'm traveling. And I, I don't know if that is actually said something maybe I've got issues with um my regular life and I'm trying to escape something. But um it sounds like maybe you're the same.
2: I'm exactly the same and you've put it perfectly. So I think one of the things about slow travel and traveling slowly is it does give you a lot of time to, you know, allow your inner voice and your inner thoughts. Um, room to just be. And as you sit within those thoughts and within those feelings, you feel very much connected to to yourself, to the things around you, to the people around you, because you're not distracted all the time and you're not distracting yourself. I think in modern life, certainly what I do is I distract myself. You know, I think, oh, I know I'll just have 10 minutes on Instagram reels just (laughs) just to to kind of quieten the voices. But when you're traveling, when you're walking, when you're experiencing new things, you don't have those voices to quieten because you're just doing things and you're living and you're being. And I find that is one of the most enriching things and why I really would encourage slow travel. It, It gives you the space and the time to just be and to feel the good things to feel the bad things because they're all going to pass the good things will pass the bad things will pass but you're continuing on this journey and for me it's a massive metaphor it's not even a metaphor it is life that is what we're doing none of what we're doing in the end will matter it just is about going through the journey so try and be in the journey try and be aware of it try and look around you try and be good to all the people around you be good to yourself but be in the journey good and bad how was the end of the journey how are you all greeted at the end oh the end was so lovely so i'm sure a lot of people will understand this after even after a holiday even after a weekend away you go through a process of mourning don't you oh my god like, yes <laughs> Every time. I know. And it's dreadful. Well, imagine after seven and a half months, I was absolutely dreading it because, of course, you know, the group was going to break up. I, I, the men were going to go their separate ways. The camels were going back to their summer pastures. And I was going to be, you know, back being my kind of normal, in inverted commas, self. So I had a real, a lot of, anx- not anxiety, but a lot of sorrow building up about the end of this adventure. I was exhausted also, absolutely. All my reserves had been drained, but I had this deep underlying yeah sadness. (laughs) Then we got into Wazzaad, which is the desert. It's just the gateway to the desert in Morocco. We were met by a band of of Amazir singers and dancers. Everyone from the village came out, and we arrived at five o'clock, just at the golden hour. And of course, the camels kick up lots of dust, so you had this kind of golden haze around the camels and the sound of the drumming and all the children capering and doing handstands and the women ululating. It was an absolutely wonderful end to the adventure.
1: Next week, Guatemalan-American food historian Sandra Gutierrez on shopping in markets all over Latin America and how the cuisines of 21 countries influence the world. I'm Lale Aracoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Karoga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week.
3: Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. I'm
0: Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.